Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley. Welcome to all those that are open and hungry for truth and reality, that have ears to hear this message. For those of you that are new, I want you to understand that I am not speaking this message with anything of preparation. All I do is spend a half an hour on a particular chapter which I ask God to lead me to. Sometimes it's more than one chapter. And I seek for the Spirit of God to speak through me. As commanded in 1 Peter chapter 4, I believe around verse 11, it says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to allow the Spirit of God to speak through us, not our mind, but to seek to allow His Spirit to rise through us with His words to minister to others. And so that's what I am seeking to do here. One of the things I do is I cast lots before the Lord in order to be led to a particular passage Sometimes I also receive impressions by the Holy Spirit about various things in my time of prayer as I sense God speaking to me about various things. Today, I want to share with you from a number of passages since the last time that I shared with you. The last time I shared with you was on September the 24th of last week, on Wednesday. And today, of course, is Tuesday, September the 30th. On Thursday, September the 25th, I received Acts 26 and Exodus 7. This describes in Acts 26 the conversion of Paul. As we know, he persecuted those that knew the truth unto death. And yet, the Word of God says that because he did it ignorantly and unbelief, that he obtained mercy of God and had a powerful conversion experience. And this was contrasted that day with the other passage, which was Exodus 7, which was on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Here we see a contrast to the Apostle Paul where the apostle Paul, whose heart was hardened against those that knew the truth, was brought to a place where his heart was transformed to be totally pliable and receptive to the truth, as opposed to Pharaoh. And then, of course, we go also to other passages um, that I put down in relation to these two passages, on that day, and that is Isaiah 63, 17, says, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake and the tribes of thine inheritance. I might just interject here that I'm just getting over a cold, so pardon my voice if it sounds a bit rough and if there's an odd cough here and there. This Monday or I should say yesterday, pardon me, I received Isaiah 35 
And in relation to Isaiah 35, I became aware of other chapters that are describing basically the same thing. This is on what will happen in the very end of time when the Lord will return, where he will totally break down the idolatrous world systems and judge them and set up his kingdom. And we have a very vivid description of this, of course, in Isaiah 35, but also in Isaiah 24 to 26. And I'll probably share a little bit from that as well. Today I received 2 Chronicles chapter 34. This is the story of Josiah, the king of Israel. This is the king that was hidden by the high priest because the present king, which I believe was Athaliah, was a very idolatrous, godless woman filled with immorality and idolatrous worship of many deities and very bloodthirsty and killed many of those very godly and righteous people. But the high priest had Josiah at a very young age when she slaughtered all the others that might have been become king, he was overlooked. He was hidden when that slaughter happened. And he was a very young fellow, and they kept him hidden for some time. And then at the appointed time, all the soldiers and everything gathered around this king at eight years old and hailed him as king. And Athaliah comes in and cries treason and utter shock. And of course, the soldiers are given the command to follow her outside the temple and there to kill her, which is what happened. And so idolatry was defeated in the nation of Israel. And in Second Chronicles chapter 34, there is a very clear description of Josiah, this young king that became king over Israel, who began to seek God and to destroy idolatry out of the nation of Israel. And so the overlying theme in the last few days has been an understanding of the contrast between those who harden their hearts and go in a direction of total rebellion against God to greater and greater hardness unto their total destruction. In contrast with those that come to the knowledge of the truth, though they may have started out with the deception of idolatry in their lives. This is not only applicable to us as individuals, but also corporately to nations, to bodies of believers, and of other entities that are antichrist. I do not know what the Holy Spirit wants to say fully in this message, but I'm going to begin to share from Second Chronicles chapter 34. I don't feel it's necessary to read this chapter completely. I think the important thing is to just share what the Holy Spirit is saying from this passage on Josiah. Maybe for those that are new, though, I will, after all, change my mind here and decide to read 
Second Chronicles chapter 34 as the theme chapter. <clears throat> so we'll begin in Second Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on the high above them. He cut down and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He break in pieces and made dust of them and stowed it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali, with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves, and had beaten the graven images into powder, and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah the governor of the city, and Joah the son of Jehoaz, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to the Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered of the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, and of all the remnant of Israel, and of all Judah and Benjamin, and they returned to Jerusalem. And they put it in the hand of the workmen, that had oversight of the house of the Lord. And they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house. Even to the artificers and builders gave they it, to buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did work faithfully, and the overseers of them were Jehath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Moriah and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to set it forward, and others of the Levites and all that could skill of instruments of music. And they were over the bearers of burdens and were overseers of all the, that wrought the work in any manner of service. And of the Levites there were scribes and officers and porters. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law, of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers, and to the hand of the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book, 
and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Hakiah, the son of Japhan, and Abaddon the son of Micah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. And Hilkiah and they that the king had appointed went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Hazariah, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they spake to her to that effect. And she answered them, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, tell ye the man that sent you to me, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof. Even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place, and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites and all the people great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statues with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers, and Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Excuse me as I have a brief, briefly have a drink of water. It is very evident from the various passages that I have received today also 
that since the last message I gave, this is a message on God's judgment upon idolatry. Also today, I did not only receive 2 Chronicles 34, but Acts chapter 19, which discusses idolatry in a very strong focus. It's about how those that worship the god Diana, or is it Athena? I'll go to that chapter just quickly and tell you. It's Acts chapter 19. We'll not be reading this one, obviously. But in Acts chapter 19, there is the historical record of those that were making a living by making shrines for the god Diana. And they were losing their business because Paul the Apostle had been sharing for a period of over two years in the school of Tyrrhenius about the kingdom of God causing many people to repent of idolatry and to turn from idol worship to the true and living God. And as a result, they were losing their income and because their income was threatened and their identity was in this idol around which they had formed this wonderful arrangement of wealth and hierarchy of status and prestige, they were outraged at the Apostle Paul and those that were co-workers with him and all that were Christians, so that in this particular chapter, they rushed upon those they could find and with force brought them into the theater and began to shout for, I believe it says here, a number of hours, basically saying, great is Diana, the god of the Athenians. Great is the goddess Diana. And of course, Paul was not allowed to go in because they knew they might tear him apart if he went in. Uh, but what basically happened was one of the leaders of that city who had the centurions and authority behind him came in and rebuked them and told them that this had to be settled in court and that they were in danger of having serious problems with the higher government authority of Rome. And they were very severe. They crucified people left and right over many minor things. And so the crowd was dismissed. So that is the record there. First, I want to explain and give an understanding of idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of some entity other than God. Whether that entity is yourself or your self-worship in relation to some entity out of the deception of self-worship in your heart. Let me explain. First, I will say this. That it says in the word of God that covetousness is idolatry. What is covetousness? It is 
the grasping towards things to fulfill self in disobedience to the source of our genuine fulfillment, which is only found in God. It is the deception to seek to fulfill ourselves. And so we take the initiative to take unto ourselves things that God evidently has not given us, but that we seek to bring onto ourselves, disregarding the law of God, disregarding the law of the natural order of things, which is under the law of God, which results in detriment to others in our pursuit, including our own selves, though we are deceived to not realize it. This morning, as I was in prayer, I found in my time of prayer that the Holy Spirit was bringing certain thoughts into my heart that were quite prominent and strong. These thoughts were somewhere along these lines. I was receiving the impression that many people do not realize that they are in a state of deception and self-worship. They also do not realize the severity of judgment upon sin so that they find it easy to rationalize sin is acceptable before God. There's the example of people that genuinely desire God and seek for reality and are thirsty for a relationship with God, but have deception in their lives. When I say deception, that's deception that obviously implies idolatry, self-worship. that prioritizes self above God in various areas of one's life. So that God really isn't genuinely the focus of love and of obedience. For example, many are familiar with the story of Jacob. The word Jacob means he will take by the heel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, from which the nation of Israel came through his twelve sons, which brought forth the twelve tribes of Israel. But the word Jacob means he will take by the heel. It also means deceiver, which is basically saying the same thing. Jacob had a tremendous hunger for God, a hunger for reality and truth, but there was this deception in his life to try to work out finding that hunger satisfied through his own ways. 
There are others, in, for example, contrasting his other brother, which was Esau, who didn't seem to have even a hunger for truth and reality. And as a result, when he was really hungry and just wanted a temporal satisfaction of good, tasty food, because he had been hunting and was without food for a long time, he bargained with Jacob to give up something that was of high lasting value spiritually and even materially, which was his birthright. Just over finding a temporary satisfaction in food. And Jacob, having a hunger and a thirst and a value for spiritual things, nevertheless was deceptive and stole his birthright from him in making a deal over promising to give him this food that he was gifted in making. That's an historical account of something that really happened back then. It may sound a bit like just a story from the way I'm telling you, but it isn't a true account of something that happened. And so Esau later on is angry that his brother Jacob deceived him to sell his birthright to him. And he is really angry, wants to kill him. So Jacob flees and he works for in a distant land with a relative. And he decides to make a deal to work in order to get this beautiful lady, the daughter of um, Laban, Laban the Syrian. And Laban also seeks to deceive Jacob and gives him his other daughter instead. And so Jacob is willing to wake up, work another seven years to get the lady he really wants the most. And, and it's a long story, but the long and short of it is that eventually Jacob, after all these years of labor and the children that have been born and grown up and his two wives, knows that Laban doesn't want to let him go. And he decides to flee and to, through deceit take a lot of his cattle and so on. So we'll go into it. But he comes to a place where he faces the consequences of being deceptive in his desire for what is of true value and worth. And so now he flees from Laban and he finds himself with his wives and children about to face Esau who wanted and he knows wants to kill him. And we have the account that Jacob is in great trouble at this time and in great travail because he's, it looks like he's finished. It looks like his wife and children and everyone are going to be killed. So he places them a great distance apart so they can have some chance to flee and prepares to give Esau a gift. And of course, that night before he's going to face Esau, he wrestles, God visits him, and there's a wrestling that takes place. And Jacob says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he wrestles and wrestles to the point that he's even prevailing in this wrestling with this person that is actually a theophany of God in the flesh. And so his 
the thigh is put out of joint and he limps. And this person, which is actually Theophany, Jacob asks him what his name is. And he says, I can't tell you my name because my name is wonderful. And actually, that's because his name is actually God. Because it says in that passage that he actually saw God face to face. And the, the fact that his hip is put out of joint and that, that now he limps through wrestling with this man and prevailing and not wanting to let him go unless this man would bless him. Obviously, he recognized that this was the angel of the Lord, actually the Lord himself in theophany, in the flesh, in communication with his physical creation in this dimension. He wouldn't let he could have given up, but he determined that he would continue until he received the blessing, and he received the blessing. But in the process, was broken in his thigh so that he limped. There was, uh, I don't know what it would be exactly, but he was left with a limp. And then his name was changed from Jacob, he will take by the heel, to Israel, he shall be a prince of God. That's what the name means. And the name in the Hebrew is Peniel, meaning the face of God. And so in this crisis, Jacob came to the place where he had a revelation of the very expression of the one true God. Before he was to face what seemed his certain death, as he's cornered, and he has nowhere to turn. He can't go back. He can't go forward. And the truth is, the next day when he goes to see Esau, he has many gifts that he brings before him because he knows Esau could be so angry that they're all going to be killed, his wife and kids and so on. But what happens is God moved upon Esau to show mercy to Jacob. And Esau, instead of killing Jacob, embraced his brother that he hadn't seen for many, many, many decades with tears. And they were friends. And this is also a picture of how God unravels idolatry, even in those that don't realize there is a principle of idolatry in them, even though they seek God and have a hunger and thirst for God. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul was zealous for truth. He was zealous for reality. He had a hunger for what was real, for what was true. He didn't want some phony thing, some shallow thing that wasn't real. And the word of God says that he obtained mercy from God because his persecution of the early church was done in ignorance and in unbelief. He thought he was doing God's service by persecuting those 
that had come into relationship with God through Yeshua HaMashiach, that is Jesus Christ, the full expression of God in government in the time and space realm. I just want to go back and emphasize again that the word of God says that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is our deceptive self-projections of God that form a distorted concept of a God that allows us to justify our own independence from God. We carve out our own image of who we want God to be to us in our lives. But we do, many of us, have a genuine hunger and thirst for reality. But not all people do, for the word of God says that all men do not have faith. And we have examples contrasted, such as I mentioned, between Jacob and Esau. There are those that do not even have a hunger for what is real and what is true. All they want is to be the center of their own world. And they often find that self-gratification of self-worship above God and in the place of God in their own independent lives by putting their identity in some outward idolatry, whether it be a literal image or a distorted perception of God and a belief system that bears the fruit of hell in the evidence of bondage that those people are in. We see many belief systems in the world, but all of the world system will pass away. The word of God is very clear when it defines the world. It's the system of things. And in Colossians, it talks about not being in bondage to the principles of the world system. And what is that principle? It is the deception of idolatry, which is the deception of self-worship in relation to what is not the source of genuine reality, of genuine fulfillment that is everlasting and ever-enlarging. God is calling many people to himself that have a hunger and a thirst for reality. And there's others that are going in the other direction and hardening themselves and don't even have a hunger for what is real and what is true. They're simply focused on themselves. And so they will place their identity in some belief system that has this destructive principle in it. I just briefly want to give an understanding of the difference between a counterfeit, self-deceived, idolatrous perception of God and that which is the genuine 
perception of God that brings a relationship with God that is real. The word of God is clear. It defines God this way. It says God is love. In 1 John, more than once. But what is love? Well, there's the highest form of love described in the New Testament is agape love. And agape love is a love that is beyond mere feeling. It does not mean it doesn't contain feeling, but it is motivated in its choices beyond anything of self-gratification. It is a free choice. It is a self-originating choice to choose the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self-gratification and implies that any other choice would therefore have the principle of destruction in it because it would be to one's own detriment and the detriment of those around them and the detriment of what points towards ultimate purpose and the highest good. God's love is ultimate in its perfection. It has total purity and integrity and always chooses the highest lasting good, which is unto God. And in those choices is ever enlarging and greater and greater expressions of creative love. I won't go into it here, but he's seeking a corporate bride, and that is his purpose that love may enlarge in the bringing forth of a corporate bride in union with him. But love has two aspects to it. It must have integrity, it must have purity, and therefore, as such, it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to this love that always chooses freely the highest lasting good. And only God has this love that is totally pure without the principle of any element of destruction in it. Only such a quality can contain unlimited life, unlimited power, without being corrupted by it, or without dissipating unlimited life and power in a direction that is destructive. I don't have time to go into all the science of these things, which is very interesting, but many of you know that there's the first and second laws of thermodynamics and that the first law of thermodynamics makes it very clear in all the observable universe that anything left on its own always goes in the direction of greater and greater disorder and chaos to total destruction. And the other law, I should say that that's not the first law, that's the second law. And the first law says that matter can never be destroyed. The first law is basically implying that something always existed without a beginning. And the second law is implying that, therefore, we should have been reduced to complete chaos in the distant past, and yet here we are, a contradiction of that, with the highest forms of beauty and order in a creation that is beyond the ability of science to fully even enter into in a great depth of understanding. I won't go into that. 
But God is love. And the first aspect of this love is the defensive aspect of this love. To have integrity and purity, to judge all that is contrary to love. And out of that foundation, there is the expression of love that can be without corruption in its purpose and its ultimate expression of what it ultimately brings forth. That love, in its expression, in its creativity, is ultimately manifested in the power of love to assure destiny and purpose to creation. If there could not be that ability, then it would imply that the Creator was imperfect. And that is revealed in the fact that God has the power, without violating the integrity of His love, to provide mercy and forgiveness to those in his free-willed creation who choose to repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice. It is very clear from the word of God that God alone can forgive sin. That is emphasized from the very beginning in Genesis throughout. It is also very clear from the word of God that an animal sacrifice can cleanse the physical realm of sin. And those that were asked to offer an innocent lamb were asked to offer it and put their hand on that lamb as a symbol of their sin being placed on that lamb. And it was killed as a symbol of sin being put upon innocence. But they recognized that the animal did not represent their soul or spirit, that it could only cleanse the physical, which allowed the presence of God to dwell with their soul and spirit in fellowship, but not to indwell it. That could only happen after God himself became a perfect atoning sacrifice. And it is very clear from the Old Testament also that there was the understanding that God's being could only forgive sin because within him, without violating this integrity of love, there was such a high moral capacity of love to actually become a perfect atoning sacrifice and take the judgment of his creation upon himself, absorb it by humbling himself even more than the mere creature and suffering more than the mere creature so that we could repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice. They recognized that moral capacity in God, for otherwise he would not have the power to forgive sin because he could not violate the integrity of his love. And it was evident, and it is very evident from various scriptures that say such things as this, what shall I give for the sin of my soul? Shall I give my children? No, that won't atone. Shall I give my own body? No, that won't atone. It's very clearly in pride that the only one that could possibly be a perfect atoning sacrifice is God himself. And it is very clearly evident that for anyone else, any mere creature to possibly be a perfect atoning sacrifice would mean glory and worship would be given to a creature rather than God. And that simply is not so. For only God could have such a moral capacity. So the two aspects of love are 
the defensive aspect of God's love and its integrity and purity, out of which springs forth the power of God to be a perfect atoning sacrifice, which is the creative aspect of God's love ultimately manifested in his perfect atoning sacrifice and his power to show mercy, to give forgiveness, to assure destiny and purpose to creation. So I want to give an understanding here of idolatry. Idolatry does not perceive God in the way I just defined God. And it started with Cain back in the very beginning. It is, to me, very self-evident that Cain had developed an idolatrous, self-projected, deceptive concept of God. He was offended at the consequences of God's holiness, that is, the integrity of his love, that resulted in the consequences of such suffering because of rebellion against God in Adam and Eve. It resulted in him laboring on the land and sweat and toil and death and all of these things. And so there's offense in the heart at the consequences of, that are the result of God's judgment. And so there's a withdrawal and Cain begins to harden his heart and not want to fellowship with God. And he begins to perceive God in an idolatrous way. He looks at God now as some enigma that he doesn't fully understand. Why would God allow all these things to happen? And begins to maybe, out of that offense, he begins to see God as demanding and holy, but he's lost sight of the goodness that is behind the holiness of God or behind the integrity of God's love to judge sin. He's lost sight of that. So now he sees God as the one that he must submit to, but he doesn't see that God is good and that he is able to assure and to bring forgiveness to those that will acknowledge his goodness and submit to it. So he has to bring his own self-effort before God because he refuses to acknowledge the goodness of God. And soon after Cain, if not even in the days of Cain, he begins to think, oh, well, this God is demanding and I have to submit to him and so on. And there must be other gods just like him in the universe. And I wonder where God came from. And so you have eventually all these deceptive projections and deceptions of many gods of polytheism coming out of original idolatry. There's a monotheistic religion that had its start from tribes that worshipped many different idols that they put on a stone and then a particular leader chose one of those idols and gave it a name and told everyone, this is the one true God. And so all these idolatrous tribes that worship many gods were brought together to worship one God. 
and claimed that he was the one true God, and yet it came out of just taking one of the idols. I'll leave it up to you to judge who I'm talking about. Look up the sources for yourself and find out if what I'm saying is false or true. I'm sure you'll find there's all the evidence there for that. So it doesn't matter whether one claims to believe in one God or in many gods. Whether even that God is the Christian God and you have an idolatrous perception of him because you refuse to acknowledge the goodness behind the holiness of God. And so you deny the holiness of God and say, God is good, he accepts all people. And so you have compromised the integrity of God's love and not acknowledged that there is judgment upon those that are idolatrous. This leads to a false counterfeit unity of many religions coming together, not around God, not around God in the integrity of his love and this transcendence that comes out of it in mercy, but around a God that does not have integrity to judge sin and that receives idolaters' perceptions of God from others. In the chapter that we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 on Josiah, we'll go back to there right now. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We read in beginning around um, verse 2, that Joshua did that, Josiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And I won't go on. We've read the chapter. He began to seek God. It is possible to go through religious ritual and to believe that we are seeking God, but be doing it out of an idolatrous justification of our own independence from God by a wrong, deceptive self-perception of God. I mentioned what happened to Jacob, how he saw the face of God and how that deception was unraveled in his life and he became Israel. I mentioned how the apostle Paul had a genuine conversion from the deception of his own idolatrous ways of self-righteousness. This also happens to nations 
And it is clear that what happened to Jacob is a foretype of what will happen to Israel also as a nation. And it is also clear that what happened to Jacob is also what happens in the lives of us that have even been genuinely converted to God. There is an unraveling of deception of self. And usually it involves coming to a place of crisis in our lives where the consequences of our own deceptive independent choices come to fruition to the place where they must be reaped in our lives and we find ourselves cornered like Jacob. In circumstances that are very difficult and that we seem to not understand why God would allow in our lives. But he has a purpose. It is to bring us to a place where we do not give up in our thirst and hunger for reality. Even in the face of what seems to be very offensive to us that God would allow in our lives. If we will wrestle in that situation and prevail in our thirst and hunger for reality, God will intervene when we cry out with all our heart and our wrestling to him. And we say, Lord, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to let you go even though I'm not blessed and I'm facing what seems to be absolute hopelessness. With the nation of Israel, we read about what is described as the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a prophecy of the very last days of the nation of Israel, that she will be cornered and will go through a time of great trial as never before, where she will cry out and travail. An absolute travail. Recognizing the emptiness. But it's out of the recognition of how helpless we are apart from the mercy of God and crying out to his mercy that God then comes on the scene in our desperation. And the deception of self-worship is unraveled as it was in the life of Jacob. I want to read to you a prophecy of what will happen to the nation of Israel in the very last days. That was part of what I received in the last few days. And this particular prophecy is in Isaiah 26, 19 to 20. But before I read that section, I want to read a little bit before it. So I'm going to turn there now to Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah 26. Just turning there. And we go in Isaiah 26. I'll start, just uh, turn down the page here. And it's describing the nation of Israel in the last days, just before the Messiah returns. And it says, beginning in verse 16, Lord, in trouble they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. 
like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. This is painting a picture corporately of also what happens to us individually. Paul the Apostle said this. He said, I travail in birth pangs in my prayers for you until Christ is formed in you. The love that was in the Apostle Paul, because he knew the greatness of God's mercy to him and his conversion, his zeal that was persecuting those that believed in the Messiah of Israel, brought him to the place because he did it ignorantly in unbelief where he received the mercy of God. And now here he is knowing the greatness of God's mercy and therein the greatness of God's loved him personally. It is overflowing with others to experience this deep union and fellowship that he has with the one true God, the Almighty's one. And so he says, I travail in birth until Christ is formed. The Messiah is birthed in you, brought forth in you. So that as it were, you come out of the womb of your deceptions into a whole new realm of relationship with God. where you are brought forth in you the Spirit of God into a maturity where you are no longer led by the things of this world, but are truly a son of God. The Word of God is very clear that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And those that are truly born of God are described in John as those that are not born of the will of man, nor are born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, and so on. In other words, they are brought forth so that they are not motivated by having an identity in who they, their parents were and their religion is, or who they want to please and think has adulation and glory or whatever other false motive that is not true, genuine, pure worship unto God. Their trust in the things of this natural realm must be broken, brought to the place of total breaking, like Jacob's was broken and became Israel. And here we have a description in Isaiah 26 of this same process happening to the nation of Israel. Israel is cornered. Her military might is broken as described in Zechariah 12, which is a prophecy of 
what will happen just before the Messiah returns. She's nowhere to turn but to God and in desperation cries out to God for deliverance. And then Christ comes on the comes down upon the earth and reveals himself. Comes with thousands and thousands of his saints and sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives and it's prophesied in Zechariah 12 that the Mount of Olives splits in half. They now know there's a major earthquake fault going through the Mount of Olives. And so in verse 18 here in Isaiah 26, they're acknowledging that they desired to bring forth God's purpose, but somehow they've been cornered to see how empty all their own self-sufficiency is and their own self-righteousness and not realize that it was done in ignorance apart from relationship with God. But it's that very pressure of cornering that brought them to see the emptiness of their life and the deception of their own ways that burst them into the deepest of relationships as a nation with God to become his corporate bride of which the corporate body of Christ around the world will be in oneness with them forming the corporate bride of God that he seeks from every diverse background coming into unity through coming to the place of receptivity to the being of God for who God truly is in the integrity of his love out of which springs forth the manifestation of that love and mercy in creativity that is perfect and ultimate, assuring destiny and purpose to those that repent and receive his mercy. And so out of the pressure of emptiness, there is the travailing and the forming of something within them as a nation that brings forth the rebirth of Israel in union with God. Whatever we trust is where we're putting our worth, our focus, and our glory. And that which is out of self, such as self-righteousness, must be broken. God never required, even when he gave the Ten Commandments, his expectation was that they would love him with all their heart and mind and being and strength. Not that they would make an idol out of the Ten Commandments in relation to their own self-performance is somehow acceptable before God without the recognition of the utter purity of God's love and the transcendence of his mercy that should bring one to the place of utter honesty which brings one to the place of utter humility, which brings in turn one to the place of utter honesty and transparency before God, to be broken of the deceptions in the mind and in the heart of self-worship. I can't go into all of this for time, 
But here we have the nation of Israel being birthed. And so we read that when this happens, when they bring forth, after acknowledging in verse 18 that their emptiness, their pain, it says in verse 19, thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. When the Messiah returns, and Israel cries out, and as it says in Zechariah 12, they shall look on me, that is God speaking, me whom they have pierced. They have a conversion like the Apostle Paul Paul on the road to Damascus. At that same time, God will bring judgment upon all the earth. And so it says in verse 20, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. This is the second Passover, except this is global. This is the undoing of all the principles of destructibility in government systems and in systems of belief and worship that are idolatrous, that have the principle of destruction in them. So the next verse says, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. There are those that are always trying to justify their idolatry, that do not even have a hunger and thirst for reality. And there are those that can be drawn by God in the direction of cornering for his purposes to be brought forth into relationship with him. And so there is the maturing of the sons of light and the maturing of the sons of darkness. as time comes to consummation. It says in the book of Acts that God has foreknown the boundaries of the nation and has allowed it to be so that they might be cornered by their restrictions to the place that they would turn and seek God. So the consequences of our own idolatrous deceptions, even corporately as a nation, are meant to bring consequences of judgment that would corner us to the place of restriction where it might cause us to be cornered to seek God and to be birthed out of our destructive ways into the perfect government of God that does not contain the principle of destructibility in it because it is the perfection of ultimate love in integrity that is transcended in creativity manifested in mercy that seeks this corporate bride that God is bringing forth from every nation upon the earth and that is ultimately consummated in the bringing forth of the nation of Israel around which all nations will be brought forth as a corporate bride to God in the last days. And God is calling his people to also repent of their own ways. We've seen the description here 
And Isaiah 24 to 26 is a very clear description of what will have in the last days. There's been a movie recently produced called Left Behind. And I mentioned this. I think God's tired of our own self-righteous conceptions of how the Lord will return. Am I criticizing the movie? No, I haven't even seen it. But I can tell you this. That people that think that somehow they are going to be raptured and escape the judgment of God and yet are living a life that is filled with their own deceptive idolatries are deceived. Oh, some people say, oh, the rapture, it only was from about the 1800s when someone by the name of Darby or someone else started teaching it. No, the early church fathers are filled with writings on the second coming of Christ. And it's very clear that those that are going to be caught up, like Enoch was caught up with God and Elijah was caught up with God, and escape such judgment of those that have already been allowing God to chastise them and bring them into purification through submitting their lives to God now. And so there's the clear description of the 12 wise and the 12 foolish virgins, and it's the ones that had the extra oil in their lamps that continued to have in the darkest hour of deception and hardness an intimate relationship with God that entered in to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they that enter the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says in Revelations chapter 19. And it also says in Revelations 20, blessed are they that have no, that are partakers of the first resurrection. For those that are partakers of the first resurrection, the second death shall have no power upon them. Second death is where hell is cast into the lake of fire. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Yes, there will be those that will be caught up to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb, but there are many believers that will be left behind. I don't think you're going to see people floating out of airplanes and airplanes crashing. It'll probably be at a time when the Antichrist system is so oppressive that no one could fly in planes unless they were totally devoted to his evil, idolatrous worship. Because it says very clearly, no, no man can buy or sell unless they have the mark. So you wouldn't get money to go on an airplane. I'm not going to be distracted by that. The thing I want to emphasize here is this. That we are finding ourselves in the place where we are prepared and ready. God is seeking a corporate bride. He's not coming back for a bride with spots and wrinkles. And yet there are churches that continue to be denominational. Christ said that we are to receive one another as he received us. He received us as sinners that were repentant. And we 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. If we, know our, if we know our brother and sister, their heart is for God and they love Jesus and they want God's will in their life. Let us receive one another as Christ received us. Not be denominational, not look at the outward things even that may be flaws of character that are repugnant to us. May we have the love of God in our hearts to seize the diamond in the rough and can go and humble ourselves before those that would offend us in order to seek to be, be reconciled with them and to win them over with the love of God, to, as it were, wash their feet with the word of God that the hardness might be broken in their lives. There are many that have an adultery with the world and the body of Christ. They are worshiping the gods of amusement and of pleasure. They, they're more interested in what people think of them than in their relationship with God. They seek self-glory. They spend all their time watching sports and doing other pleasures in very little time seeking God. And so their relationship with God is shallow, if at all. The Lord is calling us to be those that repent of idolatry. For the sin of Sodom was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. It is our adultery, which is an idolatry with the world, that hardens the heart so that we can't go to our brothers and sisters in love because we don't have the love of God in us. The Word of God makes it clear. That if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. May we be those that have a hunger and thirst for relationship with God, for it is only reality that ultimately satisfies the inner core of our being. Everything else is a lying vanity. As it says in Jonah, those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. May we be those that do not quench our thirst for God, for the ones that God calls to drink and live in his presence are those that are thirsty for him. May we allow that thirst to be fed to the point that the deceptions of idolatry in our lives fall off and are broken and we enter into a deep union with God and a fellowship with him that conquers all things with genuine love. There are many churches where the leadership seeks to control the congregation because they like to have a certain level of comfort and of control. But wherever there's powerful end-time revival, as God seeks, and as has been in the Azusa Street Revival, in the Welsh Revival, and other powerful movements, that control is broken. And the leadership humbles themselves and releases the body to move in the gifts of the Spirit. Whenever I hear of churches concerned that hardly anyone comes and pray, 
I say the solution is this. Forget about having an early, a prayer, trying to get people out to the prayer meeting. Make your church service a prayer meeting. Leadership, get on your knees and repent of control. Repent of idolatry. Fear God. Be still and be in awe in his presence until you sense the melting and the breaking and the, out of that waiting, the true identity forming. The word wait means in the original it's like the twining of two ropes together. When we come into a genuine twining with God in intimacy and fellowship, it's through ceasing from our own self-initiations out of the awe of who God is. In these two aspects of his love that I've been describing, the integrity of his love, which is his holiness, and the mercy of his love in atoning sacrifice. I am encouraging the body of Christ to remove all of these things out of their congregations so that they can become a reciprocal for the glory of God, so that they can come into a deep unity with their Lord and with one another. A baptism as love as has never been seen before upon the earth. God is calling his bride to come forth. Please hear this call and remove all of the idols so that the house can be repaired, so that you can be one of those that are called restorers of the past to dwell in, repairers of the breach, as it says in Isaiah. And as it says in Acts concerning Christ, the Messiah, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. We are in that time where there's little time left, but where God seeks to use us to be those that are the restorers of his body. As Josiah restored that physical temple, he is calling us to be repairers of the re breach, restorers of the paths to dwell in. He's calling you as an individual to seek him, to give up your panic over income, not be like those that tried to make their income from idolatrous worship. The temple, of the goddess Diana and the temple of Athenia that I talked about. But be those that do not have regard for anything but relationship with God, knowing that he will supply your needs if you are walking with integrity and trust in him. I will leave the message at this point and may God bless all of you that are receptive to this message that you may receive greater and greater blessing to fulfill his destiny in your, and purpose in your lives. Thank you for listening.